The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Amen. So my name is Randy. I'm one of the elders here at Doxa, and we're jumping back into our series on 1 Samuel, which is called... um, I forgot the name of it. It's called In Spite of Us, the story of God and his people from 1 Samuel. That's an inauspicious beginning, right? Uh, I do have stuff to say, hopefully. Um, In Spite of Us, the story of God and his people from 1 Samuel. And we're in chapter 15 today. We've been on a four-week break while we've been uh, doing a series on uh, stewardship. So let's just kind of get caught back up into what's been going on in 1 Samuel. So the 1 Samuel, the book, opens in, in the middle of Israel's dark age. It's like their medieval period. It is when it seems like God's spirit is a million miles away. Things are very dark. The book that becomes before in terms of chronology is the book of Judges, and that, that book ends by saying everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's how Samuel opens up. God is silent. People are doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. It seems like he's a million miles away. And he gives this boy, which goes into a man named Samuel. And he is the first prophet in Israel for hundreds of years. And he comes and he speaks the word of the Lord. And God uses Samuel, this uh, simple man. He uses this simple prophet in order to bring Israel back to the Lord and to secure Israel again in terms of even politically. They win some victories and really God seems to start to move and he starts to call people back to themselves. And then the middle of this time, Samuel grows older. His kids, we don't want your kids to be in charge of us. And so we want you to appoint us a king like all the other nations have, a king like everybody else has. And Samuel says, hey, this is not going to be everything you bargained for. The people say, hey, we know what we're getting into. Isn't that what we say when we make bad decisions, right? Hey, I know exactly what I'm getting into. Anytime that you say that to somebody else, I know exactly what I'm getting into. You don't know anything that you're getting into and you're just making it up. And so they said, we know exactly what we are getting into. Give us a king. And so Samuel goes and prays to God and God says, all right, give him a king. And so he picks a king who would be in some ways the perfect God that you would pick. He's tall. He's handsome. He's somewhat or maybe fabulously wealthy. He's got seemingly everything going for him. His name is Saul. He stands a head and shoulders above everybody else in the nation of Israel. So he's a mighty man, a good-looking man, a desirable man, an attractive man, and a man that everybody can say, that's the guy my vote goes to for king, and he becomes king. And so it goes kind of okay for a while. He has some successes. Saul is a very capable uh, commander. They win some victories, and he's able to actually subdue Israel's enemies. So for the first time in generations, Israel actually feels like safe. They feel kind of established. They feel like, all right, things are going okay now. But then we see these little bits and pieces of Saul's personality. We see these little dark shadows That kind of, if you know the story, you already kind of know where it's going, but it kind of alludes like this is not going to go quite well. So a couple of chapters ago, Saul was supposed to go and he was supposed to wait to do this sacrifice. And he waits for a little while and he kind of, he's like looking at his watch and time is passing, too much time is going past and he's got, I got things to do. And so he decides, I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm going to do this sacrifice myself. And then Samuel shows up like a, a parent that shows up. Uh, when the kid's like still writing on the wall and says, hey, what's going on? And then all of a sudden like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, everything's okay. I was forced to do this. The people made me do it. You know, like 
the, the, you know, like a kid, like the dog maybe do it. He was staring at me. He whispered something in my ear. So I decided to write on the wall. Like, like, you know, he would come up with excuses and that's what Saul does with Samuel. And at that point, Samuel says, all right, here's the, what you're going to get in return for not listening and doing what God told you not to do. Your, your uh, house is not going to perpetuate more kings in the future. That's what's going to happen. And now we fast forward a little bit and Samuel shows back up to Saul at the beginning of this story. And what we see here is we see in this chapter the decline for the rest of the book, beginning of this chapter, we're going to see the decline of Saul and the coming of a new king. It's a sad story that we see here because what we're going to see is that God is going to reject Saul as king over his people. And in the middle of it, today, hopefully, we're going to see why God rejects Saul as king, but we're also going to see Samuel lay down a principle that should be deeply applicable to all of us. Here's the big point that Samuel makes in this passage as we're going to get into it, that God is fully displeased with partial obedience. God is fully displeased with partial obedience. Saul mostly obeys the command that God gives him, mostly. What we're going to see is that God doesn't grade on a curve and that we're going to see why full and complete obedience is so important to God. And here's what we're going to see from this passage. We're going to see the deception of partial obedience, the reasons for partial obedience. We're going to see the repayment for partial obedience. We're going to see the deception of partial obedience. We're going to see the reasons for partial obedience and the repayment for partial obedience. First of all, the deception of partial obedience. So as we saw, as we just said, Saul uh, really has subdued most of the enemies around Israel and he's, he's established as king and Israel is kind of established and feeling safe. And so now the beginning of chapter 15, Samuel shows up to Saul in verse one, if you have your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles underneath the chairs there. They're the black ones. Don't grab your neighbor's Bible, but the black ones, you're free to take. If your neighbor happens to have a black Bible, I guess you're free to take that as well. That's just, they're bad. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. Amalek was a nomadic country, a small nomadic country that blocked Israel's way into the promised land whenever they were leaving Egypt. Israel's trying to, they walk through the Red Sea, they're getting into the, heading towards the promised land, they're trying to get through this area, and Amalek says, you cannot pass. And so what God did at this point is then Israel fights the Amalekites, uh, that's the one where Moses is holding up the staff, and the people have to help him hold up the staff, and they went to Moses, that he would be against the Amalekites for the rest of the generations of Israel, and that eventually he would eradicate Amalek, or the Amalekites, from the face of the earth for uh, just judgment for opposing God and his people. And now Samuel comes to Saul and says, you're the king, you're the man who's been chosen to take out this judgment upon the Amalekites. I've noticed what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction. That's a key phrase. Devote to destruction 
all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, right there, we don't have much time to talk about it, but the, okay, I get, I might get going to war against them, but this kind of seems to go too far. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, and then all the animals. And that doesn't seem to be fair, right? It seems to be overly harsh. It seems to be like, God, how can you command that for somebody? And, and, and I think without getting into it, and I'd be glad to talk about it afterwards and whatever with you guys, but we as humans tend to think of ourselves as either good or neutral, and we wonder that God would let anything bad ever happen to us, that there would be any judgment owed to us. But we are not born good, nor are we good in our actions. Every single one of us are born sinners and are sinners by choice. And we shouldn't wonder that bad things ever happen to us. We should wonder that anything good ever does. The fact that anybody gets up this morning and is able to breathe air and feel the warm sunshine on their face and enjoy, I, got, I made myself some grits this morning. I got it real early and I had to do some study and I made myself some grits and I make really good grits, like really good grits. And I enjoyed them. Nobody else in my family got them. You have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning to have some with me. But I, so I got up and I made some, myself some grits this morning. And man, the fact that anybody gets to enjoy good grits and hot piping coffee early in the morning is a gift from God. It shouldn't wow us that the, ever, that the grits ever burn your tongue. It should wow us that the grits are pleasurable to eat and that God doesn't strike us down where we are for being the people that we are by nature and by choice. And God tells Saul, it's your job to dole out the judgment that I've been holding back for the Amalekites. This is your job. This wording there, devote to destruction, is a, is a, is a word it means to, it's something that's been set apart wholly to the Lord. So he's saying, when this kind of warfare comes into place, He's saying, you don't get to go to these cities and defeat them and keep the loot for yourself. That's usually how a commander or a king would pay his army. They would, because warfare was incredibly hard. It's always hard, but it's incredibly hard in the ancient times. They sacrificed amazing amounts. And so when you would conquer another country, another city, you would get to uh, split the loot or the spoil, and that's, that would be your recompense, your repayment for going to war with the commander or the king. In this case, God said, you nor your army are going to profit from this battle and from this war. It is devoted to the Lord. It is devoted to destruction. You don't get to profit anyway from it. This is my mission to you. So Saul... So, so far, so good. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, because the Kenites had helped them whenever they were the people of Israel passing into, in, uh, through this area. Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt." So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag. So, wait, so, so, so far, so good. God tells him to go and fight them. 
Saul goes, he gets a big army, he goes and fights them, he wins an incredibly decisive victory. Like, no doubt about it, he wins the victory. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Anybody see anything yet? He took, the Amal- he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. All the people, except what? Except Agag, the king of Amalekites. But, verse nine, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And this is interesting. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Samuel's not with them. And he says, I regret that I have made Saul king because for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So he decides like, hey, I'm gonna go meet Saul. I gotta go tell him what the Lord has said. So he goes after Saul, when he's on his way, they tell him, hey, Saul's not here, he hasn't gone this direction, he went to Carmel and he made himself a monument to his great victory and then he went down to Gilgal. So then Samuel says, all right, I'm gonna go meet Saul at Gilgal and he shows up and this is an interesting meeting that they have in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be to you the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I think he would say it like that, right? I mean, he's feeling good about himself. He's led an army of 210,000 people against the Malachites. He has won a decisive victory. He has taken Agag, the king of the Malachites, as his prisoner, and now he has set up a monument to himself, and everybody is happy. And Samuel shows up, and he's ready to bask in the glory of the moment. I have defeated him. And Samuel, this is sort of like uh, when you come home and you talk to your kid, your kid's like, I have done everything you have asked me to do, parent. I have watched over this house. And Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? You like saying, what is this overflowing trash can that I see that I told you to take out? What is this smell of cat litter that I smell coming from the area where the cat box is when I told you to take care of that? Saul said, hey, they, (laughs) he doesn't even say the people in this case. The wording there in the original language is they. It's just generic they. They over there, I don't know who they are. These people who happen to be with me kind of sounds familiar, right? Back to the garden where God shows up and says, Adam, what in the world have you been doing? And Adam's like, uh, that woman over there, I've seen her around before. She did this. That's what Saul does with them. These people... Those people over there, they have brought them from the Malachites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Here's the thing in this part. Saul has done mostly what God told him. What Saul has done He has done the vast, like 98% of what God told him to do. He did it. 
There can sometimes be a small difference between the outcome of full obedience and partial obedience, but there's always a huge difference between obedience and disobedience. It can numerically look the same or very similar, but there's a world of a difference between obeying and disobeying the Lord. Partial obedience, mostly obedience, is not full obedience. You guys know that movie, right? The Princess Bride? Please tell me you guys have watched it. And the famous scene with Mad Max, right? And, and, and uh, Andre the Giant and Inigo Montoya, they bring uh, Wesley to Mad Max, and they bring him in there, and they think he's dead, and Mad Max does his thing, and he you know, listens to his mouth, and he says, oh, no, no, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. All dead, well, all dead, usually only, there's only, only one thing that you can do. And they say, what's that? And he says, go through his clothes and look for loose change. He may look very close, but there's a huge difference. Saul said, I did it all, except, oh yeah, I kept Agag alive. Oh, oh, oh yeah, you hear that sound? Oh yeah, that's, that's also... Um, It's also all the good sheep and the good oxen and the good livestock. Those people over there kept them. But we were gonna sacrifice them to the Lord. That's what we had them here for. That's what we were doing. I read in the commentary, the guy said, partial obedience is only disobedience dressed up. Partial obedience is only disobedience dressed up to look like obedience in order to deceive including ourselves. Partial obedience, the, the first thing we try to do with partial obedience did what we were supposed to do others. We attempt to deceive others into making them think that we did what we were supposed to do. We see that in this section, right? In verses 13 and 15 and 20 through 21, we see Saul tries to get, convince Samuel, I did do it, but then if I didn't, I had good reason, right? Verses 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be to you, Lord, I have performed, I have performed, like I'm gonna tell you up front, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Then he says, hey, what about, what's this sound I hear? And Saul said, well, and then again, Saul said to Samuel in verses 20, he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, I was doing everything I could, but they, they made me do it. Saul is attempting very hard to try to convince, Saul, to convince Samuel that he was doing exactly what God had told him to do, but Samuel's not buying it. We try to convince the people around us, right, when we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We try to convince our spouse, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our parents, our kids, our friends, We desperately try to put on a face to make them think that I'm the Christian God's called me to be. I'm doing exactly with my life what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm living the life that God's called me to live. I'm a good person. I put on this face, this mask to try to convince everybody around me I'm a good person. I'm trying to convince everybody around me. But you know what is the thing that we don't get through all this? Is that we don't do a very good job of convincing other people. Ask the people who live with you, your roommates or your friend or your spouse, ask them and they will tell, that's why we don't usually ask them because they will tell us exactly 
what we're not doing that we should be doing. But we try to convince people. We think that we're better actors than we actually think we are. But we're not just trying to deceive others when we put on this face and act and do partial obedience. We're also trying to deceive God. That's what really we're trying to do, which is the definition of foolishness, right? Because if Samuel can show up and talk to Saul and say, and Saul says, I've done all that the Lord has told me to do. And Samuel says, but I hear like lambs and I hear cows. Like that doesn't add up. Like he can call Saul on his lie? What about God who sees everything? Who never sleeps or slumbers? Whose eyes are always open? Who sees not only all that we do when we're alone, but sees and knows our secret thoughts and intentions of our hearts? He sees and knows all, but we try to deceive him. We do this partial obedience dance where, I'm, where if I'm not a Christian or I don't claim to be a Christian, that at least I'm saying like, I live a good enough life that if there is a God, if I will allow that for a moment, then at least whenever I show up at the gate, he'll be able to say, man, man, uh, he gave up that parking space to that elderly person. Hey, come on in. And we wanna grade ourselves on a curve, but God does not grade on a curve because there's no such thing as partial obedience. God is not partially satisfied with partial obedience. He is fully dissatisfied with partial obedience because partial obedience is only disobedience dressed up to look like obedience. But you know who we ultimately end up deceiving? It's not the people around us and it's certainly not God. We end up deceiving ourselves. This is the crazy thing about this story, but it's the crazy thing about life. People who study human beings, psychologists and anthropologists, like they, they continually wonder at the human being's ability to deceive ourselves. It's an interesting thing. Uh, so I've told you guys the story uh, about how uh, years ago, I think maybe seven, eight years ago, um, I had this problem, I found out I had a problem with my blood pressure and I found out that, that I had this problem with my blood pressure by the fact that my nose started bleeding and wouldn't stop. And, and, and like, so I stayed at work the rest of the day. Uh, I stuffed these like tissue papers up my nose. It was like this big giant like ring from one nostril to the next nostril and it's all full of blood. I was alone in the office where people would have like vomited all over the place. And, 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 I, and I, I knew something was wrong, but I told Megan like, hey, I think I gotta go to the doctor, but I gotta finish out this work because I don't know what I'm, I gotta get this stuff out. Um, pretty crazy. I went into the, to the, to the hospital and they ended up saying, um, your nose is bleeding as a release valve to let the pressure off so it won't explode your brain. That's how bad my blood pressure was. But here's the truth. If I'm being honest with you guys, I knew I had a problem, problem with blood pressure before my nose started bleeding that day. I knew it because my nose had started bleeding over the weekend on and off, and I didn't want to tell Megan because I knew she would say I had to go to the doctor. And actually, I knew it before my nose started bleeding off and on that weekend because months before, I had my wisdom teeth taken out, and the team who took out my wisdom teeth said, hey, your blood pressure never dropped down when we put you under. We thought you were just really nervous about being here, which I was, but it never went down. We think maybe you need to get that checked out, and I never had it checked out. I convinced myself of this dissonance in my head. I knew there was a problem yet I convinced myself there wasn't. Human beings have this incredible capacity to fool 
and deceive ourselves. And that's the people that we most end up deceiving. It's the most tragic deception. And the question we have to face this morning is, what are you and what am I deceiving ourselves about? This morning, is it believing in Jesus? Maybe you are like a good person. It would not be hard to be a much better person than I am. And maybe you are a good person and you live an exemplary life. And you think, man, I don't, I don't wanna believe this Jesus thing is real. I don't wanna believe that I'm a sinner. I don't wanna believe I'm accountable to, for my actions. I don't wanna believe that he died on the cross for me. I don't wanna have to believe that some debt had to be paid for, my, for me. I don't wanna believe that he is Lord and I am not. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm in control. I'm a good girl. I know what's going on. I keep control of my life. And maybe you have deceived yourselves into thinking that you are king and boss and you are good enough and capable enough to carry yourself to the end. And that if there is a God, he's gonna look at you and say, man, I want you in here. And you're deceiving yourselves so that you desperately won't have to, you're desperately trying not to bow your knee to somebody else and to someone else and admit that they have a claim over your life. What are you deceiving yourself about? Is it some sin? You you call it a bad habit. Or you think, man, I'm gonna get over it. That was the last time. No more. I'm in control now. I've got this. Or you think, like, there's not gonna be any bad repercussions for this because nobody else knows about it. It's not harming anyone else. I know I should not be doing this, but I'm gonna be okay. Human beings have this incredible ability to dissociate ourselves from knowing that everybody else around me, when they had that thought run through your head, like I know my dad did this and my uncle did this and I saw how it ended for them, but I'm gonna be the one who's gonna, I'm gonna overcome this. It's not gonna be the same for me. Or maybe you're deceiving yourself this morning. There's something that you know you should be doing with your life and you're not doing it. You know there's something in your life that you need to submit to the will of God. There's some change in a career or some change in relationship status or something that you're doing that you need to stop or something that you need that he's calling you to do. It may not even be such really a sin issue so much as you're just closing your ear off to his call upon your life to do something. You say, I will not do that. It might be something little, like sharing your testimony with a neighbor or a friend. It might be something really big, like moving out from being on the same roof as your girlfriend. But we fool ourselves, and we're the only ones being fooled. And that doesn't really make any sense, does it? Because if we know something, Why would we not own it? Especially when the person who's most gonna be hurt by this, by believing falsely and partially obeying is me. And the reason is because we don't, the reason that we don't obey or own our disobedience is because we consider it too painful. We think it's too painful to obey or we think it's just too painful to accept the truth. Like, so for me, and this, the deal with this, again, this is not a sin issue, but this deal with this, the blood pressure thing, like, it was the, the thought, like, I knew something was wrong. 
some, a team of medical professionals had told me to get it checked out. My nose started bleeding intermittently. And then finally, it wouldn't stop. And I knew something was wrong, but I considered the idea of having to stop my life or go to the doctor or hearing something was wrong or wondering if maybe it's something bigger than like something really big and something really bad, that was too painful to actually accept the truth. And we do that with so many things in our life. To either not obey or to, or to accept the fact that we are deceiving ourselves. It's too painful to face the truth. And so we deal with it like Saul did. You notice what he did? The first thing he did is he deflected to other people around him, right? Now, how many times have you been in a conversation where you do this, where I do this? I'm great at this. Like, I say that to my shame, but I'm really good at this. Deflecting to other people, triangulating, taking it off me and putting the attention on somebody else. Notice how he did that? Uh, I, I did exactly what you said to do. I did keep Agag out. But hey, these people over here, they made, they made me, they forced me. I'm the king, I know. But they forced me to keep all these animals over here. And they intend to do something really good with them in the end. And so I said, okay, and I let it go by. Again, it goes back to the very beginning, right? That woman, she did this. We don't want to accept responsibility for ourselves, that's ultimately part of what sinks Saul at the end is when we go down and we see that when Samuel has really pushed the issue, Saul says to Samuel in verse 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. But he doesn't stop there. He says, because I feared the people and obeyed them. And then he goes, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. He, he's not so concerned the fact that he did wrong. He's concerned that the people are gonna see that Samuel has said he has done wrong. He cares more about other people. He's pushing it off. We justify ourselves. We deflect other people and we justify ourselves. We make it seem like, hey, I, in this circumstance, it was, it was right. It was okay because I had to. You don't know what kind of day I had. Yeah, I cut on that porn, but you don't know, you don't know what, I mean, it was, my life was so crazy or my wife won't even look at me. I'm not married. How am I ever supposed to, I have all kinds of reasons to justify myself. Yeah, I told everybody about what she did, but did you see what she did? She had it coming to her. I'm just getting it off my chest. I'm just venting the people around me. It's justified. All did. We want people to judge us by our intentions, not by our outcomes. Now that's what Saul says. Saul says, yeah, okay. Yeah, we kept Agag out and we kept the, the livestock that you had devoted to destruction. And it was, did happen to be the best livestock. But we did that so that we could come and sacrifice the best of the battle to the Lord. Judge me by my intention, not by the outcome. And don't we do that? Don't we want people to judge us, or people around us to judge us by our intention? But we want to judge them by their outcome. We want God to judge me by my intentions but we don't really. 
Because again, Saul has deceived himself and his intentions and the people's intentions are not as pure as he's trying to make them out to be. What would push Saul to do this? To partial obedience and to try to deflect and justify, minimize. He did it because he was desperate for approval and notoriety. You know how we know that? Because if you look at the story of Saul, whenever they're getting ready to anoint him king, they can't find him. They find that he's high think, that he's quite qualified to be the king that God has called him to be. So he's hiding. And so then whenever God, along the way, he starts to have some success, and God tells him to go fight these people, he calls these people to fight, and I don't know, it does, I don't want to fill in the blank too much here, but maybe he thinks, hey, I've called all these people to come and fight this country, this, this, um, the Malachites. Uh, people are going to lose their lives in this fight. How can I expect them to come and not take any bounty in return? What are they going to think about me as king if I ask them to do that? They're gonna think that I don't care about them and I'm not looking at them. I'm not thinking about what's going on in their life. They're not gonna like me if I do that. And then they go and they get this victory and everybody's happy around him. And what does he do? He stops at Carmel and he, <laughs> he makes a monument to himself. Saul's great victory by Saul. But we do that. And that's why whenever Samuel confronts him, he says, these people, they forced me to do it. Okay, I did sin, but at least go with me back to the people so they won't look at me wrong. So they won't think I'm a weak king. We see that in what Samuel says to Saul in verse 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Saul didn't obey because he was small in his own eyes. And it was too painful for him to obey the voice of the Lord and had the people look at him as if he's not great. It was too painful to then accept the truth that he had sinned, because what are the people gonna think whenever I confess that before them? What are the people gonna think now I've given them the livestock if I say, no, now we gotta take him, we devoted to destruction, let's ask God that he would forgive us for even disobeying what he said. It was too painful for him. That's why you and I do partial obedience and then try to deceive ourselves and others and God because it's too painful for us to accept because we see ourselves as so small in our own eyes. We're looking for notoriety and acceptance and value from some other place than the Lord. And quickly, we see the repayment for partial obedience. One of the most famous passages in this whole book, verse 22 Samuel says to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You can sacrifice all of this livestock all at once, thousands and thousands. 
but behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen or to heed than the fat of rams. Four, rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it seems to be a really harsh punishment for a small thing. He only kept out Agag, and he kept out, if we're gonna take him at face value, he let the people keep out the livestock in order to sacrifice it to the Lord. Why would God remove the kingship from him for that? And in fact, why would God do that when we see uh, in this next passage, as Samuel turns to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And he's talking about David there. David is gonna be the next king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, which is a crazy thing to think about because if you look at Saul's sin, I kept out Agag and we kept out the livestock and we were going to sacrifice it. And you look at David's sin where he saw a woman that was not his wife, it was somebody else's wife, pulled her to himself, slept with her, got her pregnant, had her husband killed and then took her for his own wife, much less among the other things that he did. It seems to me that David's sin is worse than Saul's sin. So why is the kingdom pulled from Saul and in the future it's not pulled from David and David is called a better neighbor, a neighbor who is better, a man in your midst who is better than you? How, how could that be? And the answer is in the response that David had and the response, both of them had just punishment. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. That means to go your own way and do your own thing is like the sin of divination, which is seeking uh, advice about what to do with your life from some other place than God. And presumption, that means saying, I presume myself that I am king and I'm this deception and idolatry or to worship a false God. They both committed rebellion and presumption but here's the difference. Saul keeps on trying to justify himself. He never truly is contrite or sorrowful. He eventually says, okay, I have sinned. Just go back in front of me in front of the people. Whereas when Nathan, the prophet, stands before David and says, you're the man who has done these evil things, David weeps. He throws himself at the mercy of God. He writes Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Cleanse me, O Lord, wipe me clean. I am, he's saying, I am sinful and worthy of nothing before you. I admit, I accept your judgment that I have committed sin against you. I've rebelled. I have presumed upon your lordship and your kingship. I have acted like I was my own king in my own life and I will, can do whatever I want to do no matter what you say. And whatever judgment you have for me is just and right, but I pray, would you cleanse me? Would you provide a cleansing, a righteousness outside of myself that would cover me and save me because I have nothing but filthy rags 
before you. David's hope, the better neighbor, was in one better than him. His only hope was to say, someone has to come from outside of me to pay the debt that I owe and take the bullet that I have coming to me. Someone else has to do it. He was looking ahead thousands of years when his heir, the seed, the son of God, Jesus the Christ, 100% God, 100% man, lived a perfect life, stretched out his arms on the cross and took what he had owing to him. And it's that, it's seeing that and appreciating that and letting that overwhelm you. It is that that is, is the power to actually change our souls and break the deception that we are deceiving ourselves with and to own ourselves for exactly what we are and fall in wonder and love and praise to one who filled in the incredible gap that we could not fill. And that breeds an obedience not based upon law and command, but an obedience based upon love and a grateful heart. This morning, let's ask the question as we prepare our hearts for communion. God, would you show me where I am deceiving myself? Would you show me the areas that I'm being, that I'm partially obeying you? And God, would you give me a contrite and a broken heart before you to own that and to plead nothing of my own to bring, but only to the cross of Christ to cling. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.